we continue to look in, into Zechariah chapter 11, looking at the uh, a foolish flock and the shepherd's wisdom. The Lord is uh, doing some reverse here, as we mentioned. He's, he's going back here from the, the second coming that was being addressed in chapter 10. He is now going in reverse in chapter 11, back to the first coming. And we said that uh, Rome was going to come in at that time during Zechariah's day. It was still future. Rome was going to come in and was going to destroy the land of Israel, was going to completely obliterate the land and take over the people. And the scripture tells us that um, in verse 6 of chapter 11 of verse 2, it says, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor. Neighboring Rome is going to come in. This awful empire is going to come in, is going to take over and into the hand of his king. So we could say the emperors of Rome were viewed as the king uh, Israel was going to be handed over to this horrible dictator, and Rome was going to take over, and the king was going to be in charge. The true king was rejected, that is Jesus Christ, and a false king was set up. And the Jews even said, we're not going to receive Christ as the Messiah. We're not going to receive him as the king. Rather, we would rather have a, a Roman Gentile in charge. We despise Christ so much, the Jewish Messiah, Christ himself being a Jew. We despise him so much that we are willing to say we'll take Rome. And this is what happens when we reject Christ. We say we will reject Christ, we'll take anything at this point. We don't want him, we don't want his truth, we don't want his love, we don't want his mercy. He had come and had fed the people so faithfully, that is Christ. He was a tender shepherd, had fed the people with generosity, with concern, with great compassion. People say, no, I don't want the Lord. We, we'd rather have somebody who is who is cruel. We, we would rather have somebody who oppresses us. We would rather have somebody who enslaves us. That's exactly how the world still thinks today when it comes to Christ. We don't want Christ, but we will take somebody or some government or some empire or some leader or some ruler who is going to mistreat us. Well, We'll take them over the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember Hosea, a type of Christ, Gomer, his wife, says, I don't care if you care. I will go out and I will end up, and she did, end up selling herself as a harlot, as a prostitute, and got to the point of where Hosea walks the streets looking for her. 
and buys her back. We could say that that is a type of all of us. It's also true of Israel, saying we will reject the true shepherd. We will reject the rightful king. We will reject the compassionate father. We will reject the loving husband. All of these things we will reject in order that we might have Rome. Give us Barabbas. We'd rather have Barabbas. And there are so many different stories that we could go to. We could go to the prodigal son who says, you know what, I'd rather not have the blessing of here and I would rather go and live and end up in a pigsty. Of course, the scripture tells us that when he came to his senses, there was, there was clarity that finally broke through. But that's exactly what is happening here with Israel. And Israel is saying, you know what, we, we, don't, we don't want the shepherd that has been sent to us. In fact, this is explicitly told to us here in John chapter 19. If you flip over to John 19, John chapter 19, verse 15. If you skip back to verse 14, Jesus is delivered up by Pilate. Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, that is about noon. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. So here is your king. Here is your rightful king. Here is the king. Here is the Messiah that the scriptures so clearly talk about and prophesy about, but they cried out in verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him. That is, away with Jesus, away with the good shepherd. We don't want him. Maybe, maybe we just need to plead with, with ourselves here this morning if there is someone even here this morning that is saying, away with Jesus. Away with Jesus. We don't want Jesus. We We'll take somebody, we'll take somebody else. Perhaps it's something in our lives, even as believers, where we're saying, no, Jesus, no, Jesus. You, you can't touch that part of our life. We'll allow, you to, we'll allow you to come into our life and change our lives in, in these ways, but God, we're not going to allow you to touch this part of our life. And perhaps... The Lord is saying to us this morning, perhaps he's saying to one or even to more of us this morning, what, what is it in your hand uh, that the Lord would say to you, today is the day to simply say, Lord Jesus, I come to you. And instead of saying, away Jesus, away Jesus. And by the way, we don't have to say that verbally to mean that. We might be doing it with our actions with our, or with our heart. We come to him and we say, Jesus, I come back to you, not away, Jesus. This is what every person does. You say, how horrible that the, the Jews could do this. But this is every one of us before we know Christ. Away with Christ, away with Christ, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Here's your king. Here's the rightful king. 
And they say, no, no, we don't, we don't want him. Shall I crucify your, your king? And the chief priests answered, this is the hypocrisy of the Jewish apostate leadership at this point in history. They didn't believe in Caesar, but they'd rather have Caesar over Christ. Isn't that interesting? The chief priests answered, we have no king. We have no king but Caesar. And they are fulfilling exactly what Zechariah is talking about in verse 6 of this text when the people of Israel are going to be handed over to the king. Who are they going to be handed over to? They're going to be handed over to this, this false king, this reprobate leadership. And so God says, okay, if this is what you want, Israel, you're going to continue to resist me and you're not going to follow what I have for you. You're going to continue in your own path. I'll let you have it. In fact, I'm going to break a covenant that I have with the nations. If you go down to verse 10 of chapter 11 here of Zechariah, it says, And I took my staff favor. We said that the ancient shepherd had a rod and a staff. This could be likened to the rod. This was the favor over Israel. God says, I will, I will protect you, and I will keep you, and I will make sure that the lion and the bear, that is the other, the other nations of the earth, do not harm you. There will be a holy protection. If you can imagine a holy covering, a holy bubble over you. So instead of the nations being able to come in and destroy you, I'm going to have a covenant with them that in effect is connected with my covenant with you. That as long as you will obey me, as long as you will follow after me, as long as you will continue in my statutes and have a heart that goes after me, then I will protect you and I will favor you and I will keep you in the land. This is directly connected with this old covenant promise that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 28. We'll get there in just a second. But God now takes this covenant that he has with the peoples of the lands surrounding Israel and he says, I'm going to annul the covenant. No longer am I going to protect you. I'm going to hand you over to one empire after another, to Babylon, to Assyria, to Persia, to the Greeks, and finally I'm going to hand you over to Rome. And this covenant that I have with these nations to protect you and to keep you from being harmed, I'm going to break that covenant. So he takes this staff, this picture, and he breaks it, and he says, I'm, I'm breaking my protection over you. By the way, this, this happens when, uh, when we say to the Lord, Lord, we'll, we'll go our own way. In Jude, uh, the scripture says, keep yourselves in the love of God, talking to believers. And what he's saying there is keep yourself in the sphere of God's blessing. God says, as long as you will obey me, and as long as you will come after me, there will be a, a sphere of blessing in your life that you will see. 
When you say to the Lord, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you and I'll go after you with my heart. I'll do my best, Lord. It will be imperfect, but Lord, I want to obey you. That's my heart. There's a, there's a sphere of love. There's a sphere of blessing that encompasses us and encircles us. But when we begin to break out of that, the Lord comes in and says, okay, if you're going to stop listening to me, there's going to come discipline in your life in order to bring you back to the fold. It's like a wandering sheep, a, a sheep who says, I'm going, to, I'm going to do my own thing. And the Lord comes after that sheep and says, I want you back in the fold. This is exactly what God is doing with Israel. He's saying, I love you. I, I want to take care of you. But instead of listening to me, instead of coming after me, you are, you are going your own way. And so I'm going to break this covenant that I have with the nations around you to protect you that is connected with the Old Covenant. You say, where do you see this in the Old Covenant? We see that this is a covenant made with the peoples, that is, the nations around Israel, but it is directly connected to the Old Covenant. By the way, when we talk about the Old Covenant, we're talking about the covenant with, with Moses. We have these uh, divisions in our Bible Old Testament and New Testament, or Old Covenant and New Covenant. The words mean slightly different things, covenant and testament. But when somebody is asking what is the Old Covenant, we can say, well, it is the, the books of the Old Testament, the, the 39 books of the Old Testament, that is true. But it's more specific than that even. When we talk about the Old Covenant, we are talking about the Sinaitic Covenant, the covenant that was made with Moses in particular. So there was an old covenant made with Moses, and there is a new covenant. That's why we have the 27 books in the New Testament. It's the covenant that comes through Christ. So we have the old covenant comes through Moses, and the New Testament, or the new covenant, comes through Christ. When God says here that he's going to annul this covenant, he is talking in part and in connection with this old covenant. Flip with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1. So when God is talking here, he's saying to Israel, he's saying, if you will obey me and you will keep the statutes that I give to you, then I will keep you in the land and I will bless you if you do not obey me, then curses will come upon you. This is all connected with, with the old covenant. Verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. Now we know that they didn't. In fact, they didn't obey at all. They did not obey from the heart. But God is telling the people of Israel through Moses, if you obey the commandments, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. So Israel, if you listen, if you obey, if you do these things, then you will remain in the land and I will continue to bless you. Verse 2, and all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now notice what it says in connection here with verse 7. We could say that this is tied directly with the covenant with the nations. Here it is, verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. 
They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So the Lord says, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep you. If you will obey the commands of the Lord, I will keep you in this land. Well, they didn't. And so many people say, well, God must be done with the land. Israel came along, and instead of obeying the voice of God, instead of keeping his commands and keeping his statutes, they didn't. And so there are many people today who say God is done with Israel. No longer is he working with them since they disobeyed his covenant here. Instead of uh, obeying the Lord and going after him, they forfeited the land. That is what you will hear from some people. God says it here. If you obey, I will keep you in the land. If you do not obey, I will take you out of the land. And so there are some people who say that God is done with Israel. And uh, because he has now done away with this old covenant, that he is no longer going to bless the nation of Israel, bless ethnic Israel, the land promises are completely over with and done away with. In fact, I remember writing to somebody and I said to him, so you believe that the land promises to Israel are completely over with and done away with, and that the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, is just as special as any other land in the world. And he wrote back very specifically, and he said, that's exactly what I believe. When, when God says to Israel, I'm going to take you out of the land, that was a permanent thing. He was, he was never going to bring them back. That was over. They they disobeyed, and because they disobeyed, and they disobeyed under the Mosaic Covenant, God is done with them. There's only one problem with, with all of that. God is done with the Mosaic Covenant, that is true. He has set it aside. But the promises to Israel, and the land promises in particular, were not just given to Moses, and then annulled, which they were. But the land promises to Israel actually come to us before that and come to us through the covenant given to Abraham. And that covenant is not annulled, and that covenant is not over with. So when we say to somebody, well, God is done with Israel, and they point to Moses, and they point to the old covenant, they would be right in the sense that that covenant is over. The problem is God has made a promise to Israel to restore them back to their rightful land, not to Moses, but to Abraham. I want you to see this because this is so important as we go through our text. If you go back to Genesis chapter 13. So this is a covenant that was made before the promises were made to Israel through Moses. By the way, may I just say by... Um, uh, way of passing. Sometimes you will hear people make the same argument with tithing. They will say something to the effect of, well, you know, we don't really have to tithe anymore because tithing was under the old covenant and uh, God made this covenant with Moses and the people had to tithe under that and God has now annulled that covenant. That covenant has been done away with and they're correct about that. And so they say, well, because of that, we no longer have to tithe. And so you have 
people all over saying, well, because the Old Covenant is done away with and over with, I can just um, give God whatever I, I feel. The problem with that, again, is the tithe was established before Moses. And it was established with Abraham. We see the patriarchs, the, the forerunners of Israel, tithing. If you remember when Abraham was dealing with Melchizedek, the, the scripture tells us, and Melchizedek was a type of Christ, he gave a tenth of everything he had. So when we talk about tithing, we shouldn't go back to Moses, but we should go back to Abraham. And when we talk about the land promises made by God to Israel, we shouldn't go back to Moses, but we should once again go back to Abraham. And if God ever said in the New Testament, the covenant with Abraham is over, that'd be one thing, but we don't see that anywhere. In fact, we see that it is still in effect. I want to read this to you. This is important to understand. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, the Lord is... The Lord is specifically talking here to Abraham. And he says, I want you to lift up your eyes. So Abraham has been dealing with Lot. And if you remember the story, um, Lot is Abraham's nephew. And uh, they were getting rather crowded in the land. And Abraham, being a godly man that he is, he said, listen, this isn't, this isn't working between us. So we need to separate but I'm going to allow you to pick, and we can look out over the whole land, and you pick the part of the land that you want, and whatever land you leave, that's the land that my shepherds and I will take. Of course, Lot goes and says, well, I'll take the, the better land. And by the way, the better land is always the land with God. It doesn't matter if it's desolate and barren. If God's in it, it's the better land. But Abraham stands back and he says, okay, Lot, you can, you can have that land. And that's exactly what Lot does. And he goes down toward Sodom. And Abraham takes the worst land. And then the Lord makes a promise. The Lord says in verse 14, the Lord said uh, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that I see you, that, that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. He says, Abraham, all the land that you see, take a look around. Just take a look and uh, notice all, all the land. And he says to him, all the land that you see, I'm going to give to you and to your offspring, not for a hundred years, not for a thousand years. But he says, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. That's a, a forever promise. I used to sell for a very short time Cutco knives. I sold them for a matter of days. In fact, I never even made a sale. I was hired as a salesman. But the promise on Cutco knives, their, their guarantee, is a forever guarantee. They said uh, it's not a lifetime warranty because uh, a lifetime can come and go. What is a lifetime? You say to somebody, we have a, a lifetime warranty on these knives. Well, a lifetime could be five years for some people. A lifetime for other people could be uh, 100 years. What is a, 
a lifetime warranty mean? So they said what our warranty is going to be is a forever warranty. Now, what does forever mean? It means forever. It never ends. Now, uh, Cutco is not going to be able to fulfill that promise. At some point in history, they will go out of business. But this is exactly what God is telling Abraham. I'm going to give you this land, not just for a lifetime, Abraham, and not just for some of your descendants' lifetime, but I'm going to give it to you forever. Verse 16, and I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So whenever God says, I'm annulling the covenant here in Zechariah, he's not talking about the Abrahamic covenant. He's not saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to lift my protection from you forever. He's saying, I'm going to lift my protection from you for this, for this age. And so if you go back to Zechariah chapter 11, he annuls this covenant, this covenant with the nations that was connected directly with the covenant that was made with Moses. We understand that that is not the, the final state. By the way, as we have said, the people are even now being gathered back to the land, and this is why we say with cautious optimism, something is going on over in Israel. And I, I cringe. I just, again, say this by, by word of passing, but I, I cringe any time I, I hear either a government or church leaders talking about not treating Israel with respect, or not treating them with a sense of blessing. Listen, the, the promise still stands, and I, I want to be with what God is telling Abraham here. Those who bless you, I will bless. And so we need people on our knees uh, praying for Israel. Oh God, would you bring them back to your Messiah? Lord, would you bring them back to the Lord Jesus Christ? How can we bless Israel? How can we make sure that we are a blessing to them and not a curse to that nation? Because we know that your promise still stands. If you promise that those who bless Israel, you will bless, be, you will bless then Lord, that's the category we want to be in. So he says in verse 10, And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, that is, the covenant with the people surrounding Israel in connection with the old covenant promised to Moses. And the afflicted of the flock, we said that these were believers during Christ's day, the remnant. The afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. The crowd was saying, we'd rather have Caesar as our king. In fact, we don't want any king but Caesar. That's what the crowd was saying. That's what the popular sentiment was. We want Caesar as our king. But there was a small minority of people that said, no, no, we recognize that there is something about this man, Jesus. And when it says above him that he is the king of the Jews, perhaps, and we believe in our hearts that he really is the king. In fact, we worship him. If you remember at the very beginning of Jesus' life here on earth, when the wise men came, 
The scripture tells us that they knelt and they worshipped him, even as a small child. But there were many who, in Jesus' day, as he was in ministry now, that saw him as basically worthless. And so the Lord is saying, as a shepherd, he's saying, give me my wages here as a shepherd. What am I worth to you, Israel? Notice what it says here in verse 12. Then I said to them, this is the shepherd talking. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. Israel, as a shepherd, what am I worth to you? I have come, Zechariah is playing this part of the great shepherd. He is role-playing, but he is really playing the part of Christ as the good shepherd. And so Christ is coming along in the prophet Zechariah, and he's saying to you, what am I worth to you? By the way, this is a question that the Lord asks each one of us. What, what am I really worth to you? If you were to put a price on knowing Christ, how much would you say he's worth? When Christ comes here through the prophet, he's saying, what are, what are my wages? What would you pay me as, as the shepherd? In fact, he says here, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. If we were to show that Jesus is the Christ like the apostles and Christ did, we would use the Old Testament. This is one of the passages we could go to that is so clear about who it's talking about when it's talking about this shepherd, that it's talking about no one else other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is saying, if it seems good to you, what are my wages? But if not, keep them. So this shepherd is asking, what am I worth to you? What's the price that you would put on my work as a shepherd? Now notice what they weigh out. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, doesn't that sound familiar? So the Lord says, what are, what are, um, what are my wages as, as your shepherd? 100 bucks? What's the relationship with Christ worth? Is it worth a million dollars? Could you, could you buy a relationship with Christ as your great shepherd for a billion dollars? Not even close. They give him 30 measly pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. And here Zechariah gets a little bit sarcastic. He says, the lordly price. He's, he's acting like, wow, isn't this a lot of money? Of course, it's not a lot of money. This lordly price of that which was I priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So he says, what am I worth? Israel comes back and says, well, you're, you're really not worth much to us. In fact, uh, 30 pieces of silver was the price that somebody would pay for a slave who had been gored by an ox. Pretty interesting. Not, not a lot of money. If you go back to Exodus chapter 31, let me show you this to you in the scriptures. Exodus chapter 21, not 31, Exodus chapter 21. 
Exodus chapter 21, verse 32. It says this, If an ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master, here it is, 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So if a slave is gored by an ox, what are you to pay? You're to pay 30 shekels of silver. So when they were putting a price on Christ's head, here's what they were saying. Lord, here's what you're worth to us. You're worth to us a slave who has been gored by an ox. And that's exactly what we're going to pay for you. Somebody had mentioned that the Lord has been sold out for a lot less than even that. And maybe we need to come back and ask ourselves the question, what is the Lord worth to us? How much is Jesus Christ worth to us? If we were going to put a price on it, what would we say he is worth in our minds? This was fulfilled, if you go over to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Matthew chapter 26, verse 14 says this, Then one of the twelve, his name was Judas Iscariot. He was one of the twelve disciples of Christ, one of the twelve apostles, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? When they paid him, this is in fulfillment exactly with Zechariah chapter 11. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. If you flip over to chapter 27 of Matthew, chapter 27 of Matthew, it says this in verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. So he had sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Now he's beginning to feel guilty over what he has done. And he brings back the 30 pieces of silver and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elder, elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple. Doesn't that sound familiar? 30 pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. That's a tragic end. Folks, this is a dark chapter. Zechariah 11. We go from the glories of chapter 10 in the millennial kingdom and the ingathering of Israel based upon the promises made to Abraham. And now we are coming down into the depths of darkness where the sheep are saying, we don't want our shepherd. In fact, we'll sell him. But the chief priest, verse 6, taking the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. 
Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord had directed me. We see this so clearly here, spoken in the prophet Zechariah. So the question is asked, why? Why is Israel rejected? Why is her protection taken off of her? In fact, it gets worse. Look at verse 14 of Zechariah 11. We had the one staff of favor. That part of the covenant with the nations has been broken. Now he's going to break this second part, this second covenant. Verse 14, then I broke my second staff union. This has to do with the relationship between the northern and the southern kingdoms. They were unified. And God is coming along and he's saying, I'm going to break this brotherhood up. And that's exactly what he had been doing over the years. And he's going to do it finally. In fact, if you ask a Jew to this day, they don't know what tribe they're from. You say, are you from the northern kingdom or are you from the southern kingdom? They don't know. Once the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, all of the records, and we have all of the genealogies in Scripture, and we see the importance of this father was the father of this man, and they were from this tribe. Now all of that has been lost. God is saying, I'm going to break that brotherhood apart so that they'll know that they're Jews. But if you say to somebody, are you from the tribe of Dan? They say, I don't know what tribe I'm from. I don't know if I'm from Simeon. I don't know if I'm from Dan. I don't know if I'm from Issachar. I don't... I don't know what tribe I'm from. This brotherhood, this relationship between the two kingdoms has been annulled. That covenant of friendship has been broken. So I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So you have these two covenants that are based in the Mosaic covenant, and they are now being annulled. They are now being broken. This is a sad day. God is saying, I'm not going to protect you anymore like I used to. And the brotherhood that you have had for years and years is now going to be broken. That is, that's a sad thing. I was asking uh, the man who did our sound system. We were talking about this very fact about how Jews today don't know what uh, tribe they're from. And he was saying that's exactly true. We, we don't know. We know that we're Jews. We know that we descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But once you get past that, we don't know. Now, by the way, there is somebody who is keeping a record. And uh, the Lord knows exactly what tribe every Jew is from. And this is, this is uh, something even with us. Um, if we were to go back, many of our histories, and we were to talk about the histories that we have, Many of us might be able to name eight grandfathers or grandmothers back, but once you get past that, you might know some names. I mean, how many of us even know our great, 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 great grandfather and what he did? I mean, many of us, some of, you know, there's always one that goes, I know exactly what he did. I have it down in history. It's in the files in my home. But the truth is, uh, many of us don't know. And that's how the Jews are. They're saying, we, we know some of our history. But why is that? It's because the word of God has been fulfilled. He says, I'm going to take my protection off of you. That's exactly what he did. And he says, I'm going to annul the brotherhood between you. And that's exactly 
what he did. Now, why? That's the question. Why, why would he do that? Why would he lift the protection off of them? Why would he annul the brotherhood? It's one reason, very clear here in the text, it's because the flock killed its shepherd. That's why. The Messiah comes. Jesus is faithful to feed and teach and say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But instead of turning to their good shepherd, the Bible says here very clearly that they actually sell their shepherd. They rejected her Messiah. She rejected her shepherd. She she killed him. The sheep turned on the shepherd. Now we could say we all have a part in this, don't we? It wasn't only the Jews. It was also the Gentiles, the Romans that played a huge part in this. But specifically talking about this text, it's saying here, this is why I'm lifting the protection. This is why I'm annulling this covenant of brotherhood. It's because you have sold the Messiah. And this is the good shepherd that is talked so clearly about here in John chapter 10. If you flip over there to John chapter 10 with me. John chapter 10, verse, verses 14 through 18. John 10. Verses 14 through 18. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So he says there's coming a day. Zechariah is playing the role of Christ, the role of the shepherd who is going to shepherd a flock that is Israel, who is doomed to destruction. They are going to be destroyed finally by Rome, the protection is going to be lifted. The brotherhood is going to be annulled. And whenever you reject the true shepherd, you're always bound to fall for a false shepherd. So now God is saying, I want you, I want you in the first, I want you to play the part of the true shepherd who is going to be rejected and sold out by his own flock. And now I want you to take up the role of a false shepherd or a bad shepherd. The first shepherd cares for the flock. The first shepherd feeds the flock. The second shepherd comes along and eats the flock. And we have false shepherds today who instead of feeding the flock, they feed on the flock. And uh, we... All we have to do is often turn on the TV and we see many preachers that are preaching not the word of Christ. They're not preaching the text. They're not preaching the true gospel, but they are preaching a word that tickles people's ears and brings in a lot of money. 
Instead of feeding the flock, they are feeding on the flock. And so now God says to Zechariah, I want you to play the part. You've played the part of this good shepherd. Now I want you to play the part of a bad shepherd. Verse 15, look with me at Zechariah chapter 11. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. So there was the good shepherd. Now there's a foolish shepherd. For behold, verse 16, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. So this shepherd comes along and he feasts on the flock. He tears them apart. Ken Barker writes about this passage. He says, when one removes not from the sentence, he has an enlightening description of a truly effective pastoral ministry in the church today. So go back to verse 16. Let me show this to you here in verse 16. If we remove the word not from this verse in verse 16, we'd have an effective definition of pastoral ministry. The pastor is the one who cares for those being destroyed. He cares for those being destroyed. So a false shepherd doesn't care about those being destroyed. So when we talk about good ministry and bad ministry, the good shepherd comes along, ultimately Christ, but all of his under-shepherds and says, I care about people going to hell. I care. And I care so much that I'm willing not to preach my word but the word of Christ in order to seek and save that which is lost. That's why the great shepherd came, that they might know God. By the way, we don't often hear that much anymore. Talk, talk about hell. Talk about the salvation of our souls. False shepherds don't care. True shepherds seek the young and heal the maimed. And nourish the healthy. They do not devour the flesh of the fat ones, tearing them off even to their hooves. So the Lord comes and he says, of course, there's going to be many false shepherds, but ultimately there was one great true shepherd. There's also going to be one ultimate false shepherd, one really bad one. So we have one really good shepherd, that's Christ. He's the preeminent shepherd. And then we have ultimately a really bad false shepherd. Notice what it says here in verse 17. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. So his arm would represent his power. His right eye would represent his intellect and his wisdom. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. Now, very quickly, before we close, I just want to ask the question, who is this ultimate false shepherd? We know who the ultimate shepherd is, the good shepherd. That's Jesus Christ. But he says here, take up the role of this bad shepherd, this very wicked shepherd. And we could say that this is none other than the Antichrist, the man of sin, 
and we are still waiting for Christ to come, and we're also waiting for, he might be in the world today, we don't know, but we're also waiting for somebody who is going to exalt himself, who is going to be a false shepherd, and who is going to tear Israel apart. Go over with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, rather. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We have a, a, a very brief a description here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless a rebellion comes first. And here it is. This is the false shepherd that Zechariah is talking about here in chapter 11. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who is that man of lawlessness? That is, that is this evil shepherd, the son of destruction, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So we have a good shepherd, and then we also are awaiting the coming of this false shepherd. What do we say about all this? This is, uh, this is the wisdom of God. We can talk about how tragic it was and how dark it was in the darkest day in history was the day that our Lord was was crucified. That is absolutely right. You can say that it was a dark day. We can say that Zechariah chapter 11 is a, is a dark chapter. But it was the Lord's will. It was the Lord's will to have this shepherd come who would not be recognized by his own people, his own people would not receive him. They didn't receive the good shepherd. Instead, they killed him. But this was the wisdom of God. Let me close, and you don't even have to turn here, but I want to just read this. This is, this is the beautiful wisdom of God. We say how terrible this shepherd comes, and he's rejected. It is terrible. But it was the wisdom of, of God that was at work at this same time. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And I... When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. When I came, Paul says, I didn't come as this orator. That's not how I came. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. 
but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, here it is, they would have not crucified the king of glory. We have the foolishness of the flock, and yet at the same time, in the working of the foolishness of the flock, we have at the very same moment the hidden wisdom of God. Would you stand with me? Father, we come to you and we thank you for this text of Zechariah 11. Lord, we think about your promises to Moses that were annulled because they were conditional. If you will do this, then I will do this. If you will obey, then I will bless you. If you will honor the word, then I will keep you in the land. God, the law was brought so that we might see our sin. We thank you, Lord, that that covenant has now been annulled. But God, we think of a greater covenant, the covenant made with Abraham. Your promises to him are not over, but they are yes and amen. And Lord, I, I would just ask you today that as we go home this week, as we think about this text from chapter 11, that you would remind us, yes, not only of the foolishness of the flock, that's all of us, but but also of the hidden wisdom of God, that you were at work in the midst of this dark time of Israel being handed over to Rome, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, being given over to be crucified. And perhaps even the devil celebrated, this is it, but Lord, it wasn't it. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the risen Savior. And we worship you today. And Lord, I pray that we would not forget what you're teaching us here. I pray if there's one here today that is straying from the fold, you'd bring them back. I pray if there's one that doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, that they would see you as that remnant saw you for who you really are. And that your name might be glorified in our lives and in our church, we pray. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you as you go.